TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. And The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. On Monday, September 17th, a brand new, long-anticipated media outlet finally debuted in Memphis. The Daily Memphian staff includes a lot of familiar names from local journalism, but it has a fresh mission and a fresh business model, one unlike any other media outlet in town. The lead story in its first issue was a blockbuster investigative report by Mark Perisquia about the Memphis Police Department's policy, or lack thereof, of recording investigative interrogations. Simply put, they don't. As Mark points out, through deep reporting on a few local cases and with expert analysis from local and national experts, MPD's interrogation practices and its failure to record them results in statements that are difficult to use effectively in major criminal cases. So to celebrate the launch of the Daily Memphian in this groundbreaking investigative report, we invited Mark on the permanent record to discuss it and discuss the future of journalism in Memphis. So, Mark, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So this was quite a read and quite a start to uh, my week. Uh, and I think the, the headline uh, is, is sort of a place to start uh, where you lay out uh, or the, whoever writes headlines, right? It's, it's hardly ever the reporter. Uh, that this is an outlier, that we're an outlier, that Memphis is not like most places uh, in, in how they treat investigative interrogations. Is that right? And how far of an outlier? Well, absolutely. It's an outlier. And, and, and I guess we should qualify that to say they're unlike many places, because right now, about half the states in, in the United States, by state law or by uh, state Supreme Court edict, are required to record either audio or vid- by video uh, what they call custodial interrogations, where someone is brought in, they're arrested, you know, under probable cause, they've done something, and they're interrogated, they're interviewed as suspects. And so, um, you know, all of this spins out the phenomenon of uh, the DNA era of wrongful convictions, like that started in the late 1990s and into the 2000s, where we suddenly started seeing that people were being sent to prison wrongfully because, you know, DNA had reversed the outcome and certain individuals couldn't have done what they were convicted of doing. This started inspiring a lot of these laws. Around 2003, there were still only about three states that, re- that had required uh, to recording of these interviews. And since then, another 21 have adopted this, either by state legislative action or Supreme Court edict. And the whole, the whole idea of it is to record from the beginning to the end so you get the best evidence, right? right? We live in a video age. Everybody walks around. They've got cameras right. on their phones. This is all expected in society. But in different corners of America, there have been reluctance to do that. And one of them is in the Memphis Police Department. And even though Tennessee does not have an edict, local law enforcement right largely has agreed to do this. The Shelby County Sheriff's Office, for example, 15 years ago or more, started recording uh, custodial interrogations in their entirety. And, and by my understanding, they do it for many types of investigations, not just murder. My, my piece focused on murder, but um, you know they do it for a wide range of felony-type investigations. Uh, Bartlett PD, Collierville PD, Germantown PD, they all do it. They've all done it for, you know by their accounts, 15 to 20 years. But 
Memphis has resisted d- yeah. doing that. And you even quote a, a, an officer in one of the outlying uh, municipalities, uh, and, and he told you what about the policy? I mean, he's not required to do it, but he, they do, and, and he told you why. Right, yeah. Uh, I think it was Bartlett and Collierville. Um, I talked to the Shelby County Sheriff's Office as well, but they say, you know, again, it's a, a best evidence kind of thing. It's transparent. They feel it's the best way to do it. And, uh, you know, one of the departments, I think it was Collierville, said, you know, as long as your officers are, are acting appropriately, you don't have anything to worry about. Right. <laughs> right. Which <laughs> makes you wonder why, why not have a, a policy? And, and I think, is it true that what you found in a, in a department like Memphis, where there is no policy, I, I think that's a fair statement, um, that the procedure varies even among detectives? It does. It, it was hard to figure out what exactly the practice or the policy was, because, you know, having, having looked at a number of uh, uh, transcripts from trials where officers had testified, they would give different accounts about what it was. And one of the detectives actually testified in a recent trial that, that it was forbidden for them to, to record murder suspects. Right. And if he did that, he would probably be in trouble in, in a disciplinary way for doing that. But now MPD... Um, when I asked them about it early on, when I started reporting on this in, back in July, they released a very terse statement saying that they have no policy, but it's up to officer discretion. And in, in rare cases, they will allow officers to record. It's interesting that at that time, I was focused on this particular case where a murder suspect, he's charged, is currently before the courts, an officer recorded the last 21 minutes of a three-hour interrogation on a cell phone. It was an audio recording. He initially got on the stand and testified that there was no recording, and then months later it came out that there was. And so that statement was largely in response to what I was writing about at that moment. Right, and I want to talk about that case a little bit too, but I think I want to, you know, pause a minute and talk about how this is one policy or lack thereof. This is one thing, you know, interrogations that are not recorded. Uh, but you, you experienced some other frustrations in your reporting around the transparency of, of what had gone on. And, and talk to us about when you tried to get, you know, records from court uh, mm-hmm. where people are speaking in public in a courtroom, public courtroom uh, and, and how this system, and it's not just the Memphis Police Department, who are the actors and, and how are they treating this type of, uh, of public record? Well, this, this is really another one of these invisible issues that I don't think has really come to light. But, um, you know, uh, criminal defendants, when they're initially charged, are, are charged down in General Sessions criminal court which is basically a misdemeanor court, but any felony usually starts down there, and it's, they decide whether or not there's enough evidence to kick them upstairs, held to state is what they call it, mm-hmm. for them to be indicted. Mm-hmm. And so there's a very important preliminary hearing that's done. It's all done in open court. They bring in, the state will make its case, the defense is allowed to cross-examine, and uh, there's a recording made by the General Sessions Court clerk as part of the public record. Now, this is where you get into the divergence of views here. Me being a media guy a long time, you know, open records advocate. I see that clearly as a public record. What could be more public than testimony in in a public court? But the way the government views it, and this is what I was told when I tried to get a, a copy of this preliminary hearing where the detective testified that he did not make this recording. In open court. In open court. And I was told that this is not a public record. This is evidence. <laughs> so, so you have been close to government and government records for a long time. You've been doing this for a long time. So let's try to 
pretend that the person who told you that is sitting here. Why would, what is the reason that they give for doing that? I mean, they can say it's, it's private or it's, it's evidence or whatever, but why does that matter, right? Where's, this is the state of Tennessee prosecuting a case. What is their real reason, could their real reason be, for wanting to keep that secret? You know, I don't really know fully what, what their reason is other than that when, the, when a case is sent upstairs, all of that evidence, quote-unquote evidence, including actual physical evidence, if you have a gun or whatnot, is transferred up to the criminal court clerk's evidence room. And it's held there until the case is litigated and, you know, and, and uh, you know, resolved in some way. And so that tape is just put up there. I mean, I don't know if this is just a longstanding practice or if there's actual legal feet beneath it. Um, I tried very hard to get this tape and was not able to convince the officials. I was able to get it in another way, and, and I and I consider it a public record, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just their practice. They consider it evidence, and it's one of these their view that this is ours. You know, in this adversarial process, that the state has its evidence and the defense has its stuff, and until there's like you know discovery and they're required through motions to reveal stuff. That's their whole attitude. They're not going to, they're not going to release it. But you mentioned even in the story, one instance where uh, three guilty pleas, I believe of all three defendants had been entered Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. a serious case in town. And um, their practice, their policy that that, that you were told is that we keep this secret until the very (laughs) last uh, options for appeal have been exhausted. Well, in a guilty plea, you you have some limited rights, but they don't last long, and they certainly don't last the five years, I think it was. It, it, that is completely contrary to what you were told, yes? Well, I mean, the thing, all that emanates from what they call Rule 16, which is Rule 16 of uh, criminal procedure, you know, an edict from the state Supreme Court. And in recent years, the district attorney's office has relied on this repeatedly to say, you can't have records from cases that have already been, you know, uh, resolved by the courts because there's the potential of appeal. And in this case, um, you know, that, that was the case of Terrell Johnson, who was a young man who was 17 years old, who falsely confessed. I was trying to get the records related, you know, back in 2013, he falsely confessed, was held in juvenile detention for two months, and then was released after they, they had arrested the real getaway driver in this heinous crime. And all charges were dropped against him. I mean, the case against him was done five years ago. But there were three yeah. people in that case who were prosecuted, pled guilty, and were convicted and sent to prison. They're in prison now. They all pled guilty by the end of 2015. So that's more than that's about three years ago. But then one of them did file a post-conviction right. appeal. And that was played out. And I think it was resolved sometime this summer or mm-hmm. earlier this mm-hmm. year. But then there's that, by the way they view this, there's still this one-year time period when they still, they, he could come back and appeal it again. So you can't have these records, even though right. they have nothing to do with Terrell Johnson right. at all. That's right. But this rule 16, I think, in my view is highly abused. Yeah. And when you go and read rule 16, I don't think it says what they say it says. Yeah, I don't, I don't either, but <laughs> well, that's another podcast, but, but there again, I mean, I think it's safe to say that the default is secrecy. The default is not transparency. Absolutely. So let's you reference the Cordell Walton case. Let's talk a little bit about that case specifically, because I think it has some some of the most uh, shocking uh, parts of this story that you wrote. Um, tell us a little bit about the case and, and set us up to you know what these officers uh, ended up doing during the interrogation and, and what the scenario was there. Well, Cordell Walton is a young man who, um, you know, by the police account was involved in a gang. Um, there was a young lady that he was associated with named Kadijah Perry, and she was murdered in a very gruesome fashion 
back in 2016, I think it was March 1st of 2016, she was shot in the head and her, her body was burned. Uh, she was in, her body was found in an abandoned house that had been virtually burned to the ground. Um, for months, there was, it was an unsolved murder. Um, and, and for more than a year it was. Um, they didn't, in the beginning, even know the manner of death because her body had been burned so badly. It was only after the medical examiner did its uh, investigation they found a gunshot wound to her head, and they knew then she'd been murdered. Now, to the police, the police's credit, um, they did an extensive investigation, a very dogged investigation that led them to Cordell Walton. And, you know, frankly, there was quite a bit of evidence against Cordell Walton. I mean, I'm not sitting here in a position to say Cordell Walton's innocent. I don't know. But the thing is, is that when you really look at the interrogation that, you know, they, they arrested him more than a year after this murder. One of the experts that I interviewed said the evidence is contaminated in that case. That's her view. She looked, she listened to the tape. She looked at the records. And it, this is the thing about these unrecorded interrogations is you don't really know what happens in this time leading up. Now, Cordell Walton's um, confession is what some people call a packaged confession where he was in there for three hours. They were working on it. He was denying it. None of it was recorded. The last 21 minutes, a detective pulls out his cell phone, turns it on, and he starts audio recording them. And he, when he testified at the suppression hearing, he said that he felt he had to do that because he thought the, the suspect was being evasive enough that he wanted something to hold his feet to the fire to get him to do this sign statement later. And that's what MPD relies on. Despite this great movement nationwide to record interrogations, MPD still largely, all of their interrogations, are, you know, most of their interrogations are not recorded. They will interview a suspect when they get enough evidence where they get him to confess, then they will do this kind of written statement, which is largely a, like a question and answer yeah. where a detective is sitting at a laptop interviewing the yeah. suspect. He asks him a question, the suspect provides an answer, and then he, the, the detective writes it in. So really, and then they have the suspect initial each page and sign it. Right. Well, the problem with that, and what a lot of defense attorneys will tell you, is that you know, a lot of these guys that are brought in are you know, living marginal lives. They're, they're, they are undereducated. They're, they're no match for these detectives. Some of them are illiterate. I mean, so the words are all the detective's words. Right. And so right. you don't know what exactly was said. Again, the best evidence would be a recording. Right. But, to hear it. Right. right. In, in Cordell Walton's case, there was the package confession. The detective initially gets on the stand in the preliminary hearing, which, you know, by the, you know, the tape of that by the you know, government's account is not a public record. But um, and he testifies there was no recording. He was asked you know, uh, did you record this? He goes, negative. Did you audio or video? No. Um, do, do you have a cell phone? Yes. Does it have the capability? This is the officer testifying. This is the officer testifying. Do you have the capability? Uh, your phone have the capability of recording? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Uh, but he did it. And he did it very recently before he testified that. He later came back and testified at the suppression hearing that he was mistaken. He's human. He makes mistakes. And he didn't really, you know, that was all a big mistake when he testified the first time. But so the issue becomes with Cordell Walton is, you know, is it does in so many of these cases is, you know, was his will subverted? Really, it's not a matter of guilt or innocence, and it shouldn't be. I mean, this is a constitutional guarantee of the Fifth Amendment that you have the right, any, any citizen, whether you're guilty or innocent, has the right against self-incrimination. Right. And that's why they have to read your rights and Miranda rights and all that. 
because you don't have to give evidence against yourself. But what becomes cloudy in so many of these cases, and in his case, is that you don't know. You don't, right. was his will overcome right. improperly? You because don't know we, that. We didn't hear everything. We didn't hear everything. And, and in his case, he testified and contends that, that they went way beyond the normal things and tricked him with a, with a fake DNA report. They yeah. laid it on the table and they said, we've got your DNA. Here's something from the TBI. It says your, your DNA is on her body, which wasn't true. Right. Um, and so, you know, Tennessee courts have not really resolved that in any way that I can see that. But some states, you know, they, they draw a line there and say that, you know, if around you're documents, gonna, around faking, faking documents, documents or, or that's gone evidence. too far. Right. You've, you've improperly subverted their but will they, they against can, self-incrimination. They can say and do say almost anything. Oh, and yeah. the courts have allowed the, lying. Um, the boundaries are threats, wide, right? very wide. And, and so in this case, um, despite the, the officer's denial, there was a recording. You obtained that recording and, right. and have released that recording. We're going to play a little bit of it now, and um, we're going to listen to some things that were said near the end of the reporting. Right. We put on a great show. Oh, the fucking fire show. Yeah, it is. Yeah, he didn't seem to bite too hard on the DNA, though. Huh? Mm-hmm. That's what he did. He, 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 he kind of did it. He did it. He did well, All right, we listened to that. (laughs) So these two detectives are discussing what had just happened. Um, And it's pretty clear that uh, even they were concerned with some of the things uh, that happened. Right. Well, of course, now each one of those detectives testified at the suppression hearing in July, which uh, Judge Carter actually denied the motion to suppress the the confession. But... um, to their, you know, defense, I mean, what they said is, that, you know, the, the main one, the supervisor, uh, Anthony Mullen, says that this was just all joking. I mean, there's gallows humor that they, they got up there. You know, they've seen a thousand dead bodies, as he put it. And, you know, and, and that's understandable. I can see where he's coming mm-hmm. from. But really, when you focus in on some of the things that were said, specifically what Detective Mullen said when he said he didn't bite too hard on the DNA, and the other detective is saying, yeah, he did. And, and Mullen stops him and he says, no, he didn't. Because if he did, that will get him suppression. Um, and they, so they know what's coming, right? <laughs> they, they know what's coming. Yeah, they do. And again, that's my view, having listened to it. They, they have a different interpretation of it. And, uh, you know, they, they have all testified in court that they were joking, that this was not what the defense is trying to make it out to be. But it certainly does raise the question, what was really going on right. in there? And, and we just, until this policy is changed, don't know. And I, I want to talk more about that uh, policy change because there's some uh, things in your story from the police department as, uh, of late that indicates that maybe they're looking into right. this. Um, but some of these uh, stories uh, or cases that you mentioned in the story uh, have come to a conclusion. And mm-hmm. what are some of the results? I mean, what, what, how important are these issues in some of the cases that you looked into? Well, I mean, it is hard unraveling all of this, but I mean, it is common that it's become a very common tactic in the uh, criminal courts here for defense attorneys to raise the issue of detectives not recording. Because again, I mean, this is kind of a de facto 
position of our society. Everybody records. You see recordings. I mean, all these viral videos is because people have cell phones and are doing all this if you expect it. And so I can't say that the, the defense attorneys have had a great degree of success, but it's a common tactic. In a trial last year of a man, Brandon Taylor, who was uh, uh, on trial for first-degree murder for shooting a woman in another horrible crime, um, it resulted in a hung trial when a juror would not go along and could, you know, had enough reasonable doubt. Now, I don't know what exactly that doubt came from, but we do know from looking at the transcript that the defense hammered very hard on, you know, many things, including the failure to record. And so, you know, this is something that the MPD will have to contend with as long as they don't record. Now, they do say that they are going to start recording. And this came out later in my reporting and dealing and going back to them and going back to them and going back to them and trying to get them to do an interview, which they never did, is that they said... Did that surprise you? It was one of the questions I wanted to ask. Is it surprise you that they didn't sit for an interview for for this? It was frustrating, Mm -hmm. very frustrating, because, you know, I mean, they've been reluctant in the past to, to do interviews on controversial topics, but, you know, I mean, Buddy Chapman was the police director here years ago, and he said that, you know, he's told me, I've known him for years, and he's told me, you know, you got to face, you get out there and face these tough questions. You don't try to avoid. Now, I do understand they said that, you know, we're so overwhelmed. We don't have anybody in the homicide division. We're out there investigating cases. We're up to cases up to our ears. Um, I get that. But at some point, I mean, your your communication, your rapport with the community has got to count for something. There's got to be somebody who's got a half an hour over the course of two months to sit down and talk about these important issues. But, you know, for whatever reasons, they, they, they didn't do it. But, um, you know, they do say they have preliminary plans now and they couldn't give a cost estimate or anything that they are going to begin recording. They say there were various logistical issues that kept them from doing it for the last 15 years and um, that they uh, but they they are going to start doing it. So we'll see. You know, we'll see what they come up with. Well, that leads to maybe sort of the power of the work that you did on this case and have been doing for for quite some time. And now you you find yourself as the director for the Institute uh, for Public Service Reporting at the U of M. Um, How long have you been in that role and what's what's its mission and and focus and goals? Yeah, I've been there two months now. And uh, of course, we just started publishing with the the Daily Memphian. We have an agreement with them um, to, um, you know, they're paying us some money in return for content. Um, You know, the mission is to do what we, you know, did for years at the Commercial Appeal is to to write about these important topics, you know, whether it be social justice, criminal justice, political corruption, issues that are before the community to really reach in deep and try to get, you know, dig deep and get to the bottom of some of these things. And so that's the mission. Uh, right now, it's just me. Um, I have, uh, you know, the, the university president has committed to pay my salary for four years, but anything we want to do beyond it being just me we're going to have to get out and raise money. So it's going to require, you know, like everything, nonprofit journalism. Welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> well, nonprofit journalism, as you know, is, is, is on the rise now with the collapse of these for-profit models. And right. so this is another variation of that. And we're hopeful that we can raise enough money to build a, the, the, the goal is to build a small professional newsroom there of about four to five, uh, you know, investigative enterprise type reporters who would be writing about these issues we, we will work with graduate students, mentoring them. They will be interns there. And so it's a, it's a great marriage of, you know, education, the university, working in, in tandem with a nonprofit publication. And we will be doing, you know, hopefully, eventually, uh, magazine pieces and other things as well. But, you know, that's the mission is to really try to fill in those gaps that, you know, have been, that have opened up with yeah. the, you know, the collapse of the for-profit model. Yeah. Um, 
an interesting question. I think when, whenever we meld uh, at reporting and academia, we get into you know the sort of the macro issues of journalism, including ethics and, and how and why we do certain things. And so one one of the tiny little detail in the story that you wrote um, is about uh, identification uh, of gang affiliation yeah. with, with a couple of kids. And I right. and I wonder what the ethics are on on calling someone's membership in a gang. I mean, we speak of it in, in reporting as if it's easy, like it's gender or, uh, or ethnicity. Uh, and my experience as a defense attorney, and obviously I have a point of view here, is that that is not true, that gang affiliation is, is fluid, that it is not a formal right. thing. It's, you certainly don't have a certificate. So when you... Not it, a card-carrying member. Right. right. <laughs> and so when you say that, you know, a couple of young men were both members of the Hoover Street Crips gang, right. how, how do you say that? And what goes well, into the process of de- writing that into your story? I mean, it's, it's, it's strictly a matter of that's what they told the police and that's what the, were in the police report. So, you know, I didn't, you know, I had no way of independently verifying that. I mean, it's kind of, you know, and, and I don't think that in that passage it was attributed, but that's where it comes from. And in so, this instance, it's from the, the two young men themselves. Right. I mean, that's what they, that, that's my understanding of what they told the police, and it was reported widely at the time. And so, you know, back in 2013. But, um, but you know, that is kind of the nature of reporting in general is that so often you're totally dependent on what the police tell you. Now, you raise a good question, and maybe this is something that I guess, there, you know, obviously there's some stigma with that, right? I mean, that must be where you're coming from with right. that. And so maybe this is something that needs to be thought through over time because everything the police tell you obviously right. isn't true. But right. the, but there's a great dependence in rep- reporting about on about police matters to rely upon the police. Right. And that's, I, and you don't really have a, much of a choice in right. that. And, and that was my point. And, <laughs> and um, because, you know, once that's established... Right. Any credibility that they have for anything right. other than guilt <laughs> right. and, and the need to be punished is, is sort of a foregone conclusion. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited when I when I hear, you know, experienced uh, reporters, uh, you know, begin to, to talk to graduate students and, and, and discuss issues like that about what it what you need as a reporter before you say that in your story. And, right. and you know, you had admissions from the, the, the suspects themselves. So that's um, that's interesting, I guess. um Talk, let's talk a little bit about the Daily Memphian and this new model and um, and how that came to be and what's your hopes. I mean, you've seen a lot in journalism in Memphis over the past few decades. What are you uh, What are you hopeful for? What are you you know nervous about? I think it's a very exciting moment right now um, because you know I was at the Commercial Appeal for twenty nine and a half years and you know that for the first fifteen years, I mean. The commercial appeal really was the gold standard of journalism here. I mean, it was the heyday of that that kind of the the end times or the heyday of the you know journalism big newspapers it was it was a big metropolitan paper sold papers in five states circulation was huge had a big staff how big see, of a staff Can well you... you know we had when i got <laughs> i'm going to reveal my age yeah here, that's what i want to do <laughs> I, I, got, <laughs> I got here in 1989 and i was a young man then and um you know we had 220 people wow. in the news operations <laughs> alone 1,300 people in the building. Wow. Um, now their news operation is down to about 35 to 30 people, 30 or 30, 35 people, as I understand it. It was around 35 when I left. So you think about that. It's wow. just a fraction of what mm-hmm. it once was. And you read these national studies about how over the last 20 years, newspapers have lost half their readership. They've lost a lot more than that in Memphis. It really is, it, it's a, I think, a tragic tale. So to see the, the Daily Memphian 
come, you know, kind of like the Phoenix rise from the ashes. <laughs> right. and, and it's a nonprofit too, right. you know, and, and it's got this money behind this and this spirit and, uh, you know, uh, this spirit of community service. It really is, I think, a, fa- a fascinating and exciting moment. It almost gives you goosebumps thinking about it. You know, what the future will be, I can't say, because there's still a lot of uncertainty in this business. They have, the sustainability is a big issue you know, it will be that big issue for the for the Daily Memphian. It will be that for the you know my organization, the Institute for Public Service Reporting. You got to get out there and raise money, which is a whole new dynamic right. because you know we're as journalists are just you know our business was just you know going after the truth, you know, and, and interviewing and investigating and whatnot. And now we got to wear another hat, and that's you know fundraising. So I think it's there's a lot of uncertainty, but it's a very exciting time, and I'm, I'm proud to be part of it. Yeah, yeah, and you you clearly still believe in the power of good good journalism and and what it can do to our our public institutions. Um, and you we talked you know before we started recording a little bit about how you have done a lot of reporting on the police department. Yeah. And, and another transparency issue um, is it's around body cameras, which is something that um, uh, that this community has been kind of struggling to get started, or this this police department struggled to get started. And in fact, just this week we've we've got an officer involved shooting where. There's some indication that the body cameras that they were wearing were in the off position at critical moments during during this interaction. Um, I, I don't I mean, I don't know if you've reported on that story or not, but like what what is the future of your reporting hold with regard to the Memphis Police Department and these transparency issues? Well, you know, that is that's a classic one there, I think, because, you know, in, in all the recording you know movement that's going on, um, there are loopholes, you know, that, you know, it, that these state laws on recording custodial interrogations. A lot of them deal with, you know, the potentiality of, you know, malfunctioning of equipment, which, you know, can happen. We know that. I mean, I've had, you know, been out there in the field and something didn't work right. And, you know, it can happen. But when it does happen, it's going to raise, you know, a lot of questions because people aren't going to believe it, for one. I mean, um, there's obviously a lot of doubt and criticism already because, you know, why wasn't this recorded? It's very convenient that it doesn't record at the very critical moment that you need it. And so in some cases, you know, this is like you'll have to go through these and judge them, you know, one by one as they come. But, you know, you know, in some cases, clearly the police are going to try to hide it because we know at times they do that. It's human nature. People want to cover their mistakes. And at other times there will be legitimate equipment malfunction and it's going to be tough to sort it out. But that's something that's just uh, something we're going to have to go through with each one of these. Right. Well, Mark Perskia, thanks uh, so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for um, uh, this great story. I look forward to, to many more. And, um, we appreciate you being here. Well, thank you so much for having me, Josh. That was investigative reporter Mark Perisquia talking about his recent report in the newly launched Daily Memphian about the Memphis Police Department's policy of not recording investigative interrogations. Check out that story at dailymemphian.com. We'll also post it in the description for this episode. While you're there on their site, go ahead and subscribe. If you're a teacher, they're going to offer subscriptions for free. It will also be available at libraries and other public spaces for free. For the rest of us, it only costs a few dollars per month, and you're supporting local journalism and stories like Mark's. If you want more on this story, Mark provided us with the full recordings of the packaged interrogation of Cordell Walton and the detective denying the existence of the recording under oath in an open court. We'll link to those full recordings in the description of this episode as well. Special thanks to Katie Raines for helping produce this episode, and always thanks to Carla and Gil Worth at the OAM Network for their support of the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their other shows at theoamnetwork.com. Jeff Hewlett wrote and performs She Got Gone, the original theme music for the permanent record. Thanks, as always, to Jeff. 
By the way, our very first episode of The Permanent Record was an interview with Memphis Police Director Michael Rawlings. We recorded that interview in Director Rawlings' office. There were two video cameras set up on me and Director Rawlings. I was mic'd wirelessly for that interview. We were told by his public relations folks that that was standard practice for people who interviewed Director Rawlings. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record somewhere. Give us a rating. Really, it's as easy as clicking on the little stars, as many of those stars as you're willing to click on. It helps us build our audience. In the Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. TheOAMNetwork.com Power to the podcast.